Welcome to In Early, the crypto podcast, where I speak to those at the forefront of the digital asset space, telling real life stories, discussing the growth and growing pains of the industry, and exploring how blockchain technology has made an impact on people's lives. My name is Matt Green, and I'm the blockchain litigation lead at Shoesmiths. This week, I speak to the man claiming two names, Dr. Craig Wright and Satoshi Nakamoto. Following episode eight of this podcast with Nick Smart of Crystal Blockchain Analytics, where we discuss the Bitcoin blockchain in the context of what the claimant is seeking in the case of Tulip Trading, Dr. Wright's team reached out to me to organize a recording to give his own views. Following a two-hour session, the podcast has been divided into two separate episodes. This week is about the man himself, his views on the history of digital money, what he says he did as Satoshi Nakamoto, including the reasons why he says a pseudonym was made and where that name came from, who else, in his view, helped create Bitcoin, and some of the clues left considering, amongst other things, C++ programming and the use of operating systems. Why Bitcoin was released when it was, as well as the differences between Dr. Craig Wright the man and Satoshi Nakamoto the character, and why it was necessary, in his view, to split the two. The second episode is about the mechanics of Bitcoin, the differences between BSV, BTC and BCH, about decentralization and what that means to him, crypto assets as property reviewing the Law Commission's views, as well as Professor Robert Stevens's paper, Crypto is Not Property. We also look at anonymity versus privacy, how if he won in tulip trading, he can enforce a judgment given the global nature of the issue, his firm Enchain and its vision, and so much more. These episodes are designed to give you, the listeners, threads to pull on and potentially further material as we study Bitcoin and its development. Craig, welcome. Thanks for coming down. No problem. Loving uh, sort of being here. Brilliant. Now, I I just want to sort of get straight into this. I attended the London Blockchain Summit earlier this year, which I I understand was one of your events. And I heard you speak, so I know you're a good storyteller. You have a wealth of knowledge, and I'd like to tap into that today, if that's okay. okay. Um, I am purely because my dad calls me up and asks me follow-up questions um, every time one of these podcasts is released. I'm going to ask that you keep the language and ideas relatively basic um, so that people like myself and my dad can follow what's going on, if that's all right with you. So I preface this podcast by saying I'm not a developer or a coder, um, so if I ask for a term to be explained, it's from a place of learning. Certainly. So I want to take it all the way back. Um, and understand the origins of digital money pre, pre-Bitcoin and those moments leading up to its creation. Now, when we had a pre-call, you, myself, um, for this podcast, you mentioned a few books and theories spanning from the 1980s through to the 2000s. And I have two questions for you, and we'll take them in turn if that's okay. Can you tell me, the ma- uh, well, can you tell me about the main resources and theories leading up to the creation of Bitcoin? So we're going back a long time, but I mean... Uh... The start of all this, and probably the start of my interest, was The Economist. Back in 88, they had an article with the phoenix on the cover about global world money, the uh, sort of need for a system that can be interchanged everywhere. Um, And this was as, well, basically, the Soviet Union was collapsing and everything was changing in the world. A little after that... There was a lot of effort in, in different areas. Um, eCash came out, which was a cryptocurrency. There were a number of other cryptocurrencies at the time, but there was also digital money. Over here in England, NatWest actually 
tried one. I mean, they had a digital cash system. Um, unfortunately, they didn't let any other banks interact, which, I mean, if you think about it, is very limiting. Um, you have a one bank only system. So what they needed to do was open it up and be more universal. At the same time, um, I was in, involved with um, um, Digital Equipment Corporation quite heavily. I mean, um, VMS was one of the systems I played on a lot. Um, so I ended up with the stock exchange in Australia. But um, um, they had a system called Millicent. It had um, something similar. I mean, the language in Millicent was called script. Um, so like Bitcoin, funny enough, mm -hmm. um, hashed entries, etc. cetera. But um, again, they got it wrong because the way they, they handled double spending was they made each merchant have their own issue. So it was like NFTs. So you could pay and then redeem. So, I mean, um, so you had to pay up front for everything you wanted. So if you wanted to go like to Pret up the road yeah. here, you would give them 20 pounds and then you would redeem 20 pounds worth of coffee over time. And it's not how people act. So, right, that seems like a weird system. Well, yes. I mean, some of the fundamental ideas were actually very good. Yeah. Um, but again, uh, they don't really, they, they thought, like many developers, I can shoehorn society into my great idea rather than how do I make something that people actually want to use? Mm. So there was a limiting factor there as much as the digital money mm. was created, but it was in its own ecosphere that wasn't let out. Exactly. And both of them. I mean, Nat, um, NatWest over here with the whole, we've got our own digital cash system, but no one else can play. Mm. I mean, so you go up to merchants and you go, well, you mean I can only use it for NatWest customers? Yes, that will encourage them to come to NatWest. And why? Well, it doesn't really work in the real <laughs> unless there's a real world use for that in mm. that stage. It's probably not that helpful. Yeah, not everyone in the world is a NatWest customer. Yeah. And when you say digital money in that period, what does that mean? What does it look like? Uh, we're going right back to about 87 with Sholm. Uh, Millicent came out about 92. Um, when I was working, I had my own, I, I started a very small ISP when in about 91 um, and sold that and uh, ended up working for a company called Aussiemail that, funny enough, got sold off to WorldCom, and uh, which doesn't exist anymore either. Uh, did a lot of work between... Um, uh, Sun and um, Deck at that time, neither of which exist anymore. <laughs> uh, Silicon Valley back then was very different to now. Um, the other, there were many, many other systems around as well. So everyone and their dog was trying to create some sort of digital money because yeah. no one could figure out how you monetize the internet, especially after '94. In the 94 to about 2002 timeframe, um, it was a big thing. So in the tech world, this is one of those sort of holy grails. How do we solve this and get mm. payments? And the idea of Millicent was like, I'd go to Google and I'd pay them 10 pounds and then cent by cent, I would be able to spend it, which is fine, except I have to pay my money up front. Yeah, it's almost like having a card where you go to John Lewis and you buy a, a voucher, yeah. right? And then exactly. you can redeem it over time. I suppose people don't want to really operate like that. No, they don't. I mean, it, it's a great thing if you want to give someone a gift, but that's not how people do day-to-day -day finance. Mm. And what does it look like in that period, digital money? Is it 
it's is it a card is it a, a, a ledger like you're describing is that is that the sort of start of where we are now it's sort of this idea of ledgers um well ledgers go back a long way but um, digital there, ledgers yeah. so you right. there was a combination of all of this the um visa mastercard people came up with set and they were trying to do smart card based solutions mm -hmm. um, some of which we now have a limited version of in europe with the the um, smart card that we tap and things like this but it was mm. actually much more um, like the set um, version of this was much more intelligent and would have uh, would have been better as well but they couldn't handle pki or um, identity management and the way that it ended up left no privacy so I mean, it's that balance. So people have gone all around the circle, so to speak. Um, and if you think about um, like the statistics or the dartboard where you have all the different areas, mm -hmm. no one got the center. That's interesting. So there was issues. Privacy was one. Who you're contracting with was another. Mm -hmm. Who were the main players at that time? Because again, when we had our prequel, you were mm. showing me books of people. Who were some of these characters? Well, um, David Shaw was one of the, the early ones, but he was on the cryptocurrency side. And he had a big following. And the problem, um, a lot of academics went down this path. Mm. The result, rather than looking at privacy, they, they came to assume that anonymity and privacy were the same. I mean, um, unfortunately, most computer scientists don't, do liberal arts and they haven't read Plato and Ring of Gyges isn't their thing and try and tell them about um, uh, Glaucon and any of these guys, mm. they're lost. Okay. So they assume that, well, I'm good, so everyone else is going to be good. And that becomes a big problem. I mean, I can do these things, so why can't others? Well, the answer is not everyone's the same. Well, isn't, that's quite an arrogant perspective, isn't it, as well? If, if we can do it, so should everybody else. Mm. So one of the other things on that darts board you were talking about is, I suppose, in that respect, accessibility, yes. right? Because um, in that respect, people weren't able to access. There was a sense maybe of arrogance, but overconfidence, mm. whatever you want to call it. Um, what about some of the other main characters in the, in this space? So you've, you've mentioned one. I think you showed me all sorts of books and names that I couldn't remember at the time. Well, I mean, it's also part of the reason why um, Deck failed. Um, that arrogance, once again, if you consider um, DEC had a search engine before Google. Mm -hmm. Now, there were problems with it, but if you knew how to use it, it was really good. If you knew. If you knew. I mean, you get a whole lot of crud if you didn't, but imagine now that you know how to do a regex Boolean search, and it was wonderful. You get exactly the pages you want, better than Google even does um, mm -hmm. at their best. Now... The average person, of course, doesn't know how to use regex. I mean, reg I, I, I certainly have no idea. That's regular expression. So mm -hmm. um, basically, it's a type of Boolean search where you're doing um, sort of filters on words, different spelling, being able to put um, um, a sort of filter for S or Z for getting both American and um, and the other, um, all sorts of things like this. And, yeah. And, um, if you know how to do it, and they'd say, well, if people learn how to do this, and of course, people weren't learning how to do this. So now Google's one of the biggest companies on earth, and DEC got bought by Compaq, who got bought by HP, and HP's small. Mm -hmm. And the irony here is, it's that arrogance once again. It's people can learn how to use our system rather than make So it's it a little bit like, I guess, in that respect, 
just it's sort of like this accessibility problem there's an overconfidence it sort of reminds me a little bit about uh, maybe it's a useful um, um similarity maybe not i think it was Enron had the opportunity to buy Netflix or something years ago, and they just sort of were too arrogant to really go mm. to the future. Is that a useful comparison to where that period was for digital money? People were just too arrogant. They didn't really see yeah. how the wider world could get involved. Yeah, I think the, the same thing applies to most of Silicon Valley today. Okay. I mean, now we're, <coughs> excuse me, now we're moving to where Google and Facebook and, and the others just mm. think, well, we're big, we can do whatever we want. Mm. Um, and they're not, again, thinking about what the constituent they serve. And and they do. I mean, yeah. um, corporations, I mean, the way I'd explain it is they're a form of super intelligence. Okay. I mean, each of us people yeah. um, are the neuronal links in, in something more. And yes, we apply to different things. We apply to society as a whole, to nations, to corporations, but... That corporation is made up of the individuals in it, and in a way, there's an emergent phenomenon, and and these corporations have their own intelligence. And mm. so they're going, no, they don't. But then look at an individual neuron in your mind; it acts independently. And if you take one out, then you're going to have very little difference in reality. But you take many out, and it starts changing things. Interesting. I, I, while you were saying that, it reminded me, I actually got it wrong and I apologize. It was, anyone was going to buy Blockbuster. So ah, not, not yeah. Netflix. Does that ring a bell? Mm. Yeah, I, I think I got that, all, that yeah, wrong. No. So apologies. It was Blockbuster. Blockbuster now. It, it was Blockbuster. I want to hear a little bit more about you because in that period of time, I think that was, um, I, I think it's worth you explaining where you were during the 80s, 90s, mm. early noughties. What were you doing? What were you studying? What was your story in that period? Bit of everything. Um, Going back to the 80s, I, uh, I mean, I started my first degree, um, and then I did more, <laughs> keep doing them. Um, my first one um, was a college that got bought up by another college that, I mean, it's now part of QUT in Australia, but... Okay. What was it in, your first? Um, discrete mathematics. Okay. And is that a similar trend? Was it all mathematics, programming, all of that? No, no, all sorts of things. Um, I ended up even doing theology, and I mean that was my first doctorate. So okay. Up, but, yeah, very different. And it, it, that was that during the eighties. I understand that you were studying the nineties. You were in sort of in particular circles where you were learning about um, mathematics and cryptography. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I mean, I, I set up my own ISP first. I did a number of other little bits and pieces. I worked for other people while doing it. Um, that wasn't making much money, so I uh, gave myself a day job at uh, WPA, which became Corporate Express, which became Staples, which now is some other name again. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, as they change. Same business, office supply globally, but um, I helped set up warehousing systems and automation there, and then I left and um, uh, became the corporate sort of engineering manager, services manager for um, Ozimal. And um, Ozimal was one of the larger ISPs in Australia. Okay. And, I mean, um, interestingly, the um, the boss of the place, um, or one of them, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, became uh, Prime Minister of Australia later. Okay. Uh, and in, in that respect, how did it come from sort of working, I'm going to just call it Staples for now. Hmm. How did it get from Staples to the world of cryptography to, to mathematics? Because obviously there's an academic well, background. I mean... Uh, 
the logistic systems I was setting up. I mean, we had to have items mm. in a database. Um, Bitcoin's just a database. So each of those entries, I mean, effectively becomes a token in the database. So mm -hmm. A pencil is then tokenized and put in a bin, and the, the bin itself is a database. So um, you, you have that item represented by uh, an entry in uh, a field in a database. Okay. And each individual packer is then given their identity, and each area in the database uh, represents a part of the sort of setup of the warehouse, and it's all mapped out. So it's, it's sort of like the movement of data or the understanding of the movement of data. Mm. Is that a good way to surmise it? That, that's, and it was sort of your academic background as well as you working at mm. jobs allowed you into this sort of world which sort of sat hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair summation? Yeah. And going back then, um, oh God, we had some 360s. Yeah. 360s? Yeah. They're, they're the size of a small fridge. Okay. Um, and probably have, like you need 10 of them to do an iPhone. Okay. Uh, but we had probably more actually, but we had a pile of these things, um, in making lots of heat in Queensland and, and Sydney. Yeah. And, um, there weren't like, you couldn't just go out and get Oracle back then the way that we do now. Mm -hmm. So most of the databases you had to actually code new entries to have things. Um, it wasn't pretty like now it was all, I mean, it ran over, um, internet as the backbone network, yeah, um, being Sun. But um, <clears throat> the problem was this is pre-web browser. So we had Gopher and things, but you had to have like text menus. So although you could actually, there was still a mouse, mm. it moved things around and you could, you had a field you had to type in and the colors were 256 on a screen. And if you wanted to make a menu, you had to basically do it with ASCII characters. I mean, so, it's amazing how much you can get out of ASCII characters, including pictures and artwork. Okay. So this this sort of stuff dates back, as you're telling me, through from, from the 80s. And I'm just going to move on to the next point because I think it's, it's interesting and I want to get your view on it. Mm. Um, so there was a specific comment I noticed at paragraph 34 of the Treasury Committee's Regulating Crypto Report from May 2023. And it notes, I'm going I'm to quote from it. While the government believes that crypto technologies can have a profound impact across financial services. Others were less convinced. Dr. Larissa Yarova, Associate Professor uh, at Finance at the University of Southampton told us, the government should stop believing the myths of groundbreaking features of blockchain technology. It is simply another way to record and store information based on ideas that had already emerged in the 1980s, which became possible to fulfill, uh, to fulfill in the last decade thanks to the increase of computer power. Do you agree with that? Is that broadly correct in your view? Yes and no. So if I go back and I, I read um, early sci-fi, mm. then those ideas are there. So in the 1890s, sending someone to the moon, well, that's there. Mm. I mean, the time machine, all these things. I mean, we don't have that one, but I mean, flying cars, uh, we don't have those either. We've got Twitter. So, yes, the ideas are there. Yeah. But so what? I mean, until you implement them, they're, they're just a concept. They're fiction. I remember there was a, when you say that, there was a Tom Cruise film, I think, years ago. And they had, it was, he was on a train and there were people reading newspapers and all the graphics mm. coming to life. Everyone thought that was amazing. And not too long later, we've got 
phones. It, it is that sort of idea, right? You can't just have a monopoly over that idea. Yeah. It's actually implementing it, I suppose. That's exactly. Copyright and everything else. Mm -hmm. So that's why an idea can't be patented, the implementation can. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, you'd have a monopoly over everything. and that. Otherwise, you're not actually a scientist or a technologist. You're an author and a fiction writer. Let's <laughs> say, well, going back to Star Trek, maybe that's right. Exactly. But my understanding here is that, yes, it goes back to the 1980s, and yes, the computing power is important, but actually her perspective of this is mm. unhelpful. I agree. And if you think about it for a moment, you could say the same about um, when someone invented a double-entry book. Mm. I mean, accounting, that'll never take off. <laughs> I mean... Oh, those Medici guys. I mean, what are they wasting their time with yeah, recording yeah. all this stuff and checking it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and yet here we are, some of the biggest firms on earth um, are accounting firms, um, Ernst & Young, PwC, mm. Deloitte, etc. Um, well, doesn't that mean that someone had that idea too? But define groundbreaking. I mean, it's going to change things. It's going to revolutionize aspects of the world. But equally, um, I mean, some of the mythology needs to be addressed. So, mm. I mean, it is correct, but wrong. Right. But Angela Welsh um, came up with some articles I quite liked a while back. Okay. She talked about um, uh, like decentralization and how it's being misused. And I agree. I mean, decentralization, distributed networks, really comes down to... Um, um, Baran 1964, the RAND developer who came up with packet switch networking. Now, if you look at his ideas, that's decentralization. And that RAND researcher did this as a US Army project. Right. So the error is we're taking it and we're saying decentralization and we're using the Marxist idea of decentralization where everyone's equal and it's global um, sort of uh, equality without hierarchies. I'm sorry, but we're humans. We will always have hierarchies. Mm. We're a hierarchical creature. We don't sit there altruistically doing anything. Um, it is a form of, I mean, the ideal is an ethical selfishness. And I'm going to say ethical selfishness, not self-centered. Mm -hmm. But um, if, I mean, to love someone else, you've got to love yourself. I mean, that sort of thing. I mean, you have to actually think about building yourself up to be something for other people as well. So that's not altruism. You have to study and work hard. Mm. So when you do that, when you develop your own being, then you offer more to society. But you don't do it because you're offering to society. You do it because you're developing yourself. Okay. I mean, we're definitely going to speak about decentralization later. And uh, clearly that's a... a, a a preface to what's going to be said later, but I'm really going to pick your brains on that later because it's a, it's an important point. Well, the thing there is, if you think about it for a moment, the collective, hmm. the we're all decentralized. Well, you're exactly the opposite. All you've done is become a minion in something that is not you. To be decentralized, if you want to think of it that way, hmm. is individualism, and it means thinking about what you're doing. But I mean, the the thing there is virtue once again. Why am I and um, and I, I'm going to say this in the correct way because, um, because if you think about Frankfurt, the um, uh, philosopher who wrote on, mm. it's the truth, fiction, don't care. And you have to care. You have to have a reason behind these things. Mm. 
and why am I doing it? Why is it better? Why is it, am I just being self-centered or am I actually doing something to develop myself? So I'm glad that, that you, you sort of haven't sat on the fence and you have to some extent in terms of her, her, her findings. And I think I broadly agree with you. Mm. I think the idea is, is that, yes, this is historical and the technology has been able to develop and it should. So undermining it by saying that it's been around for a while isn't very helpful at all, in my view. And I think, I think that's broadly what you're saying. I want to move on to, to Bitcoin specifically, if that's okay with you. Certainly. Because I understand that's, that's your bread and butter, right? So I have two very straight questions, which I'm, I'm, I'm going to take in turn. Um, so can you explain to us what role you played in the development of Bitcoin, including as part of a team, if applicable, who the parties were? Tell us that story. Well, up until launch, it was fairly much me. I mean, um, I involved other people in like looking at things, sounding boards. Uh, people like my uncle were there um, to tell me um, to cut the size of the white paper down because, I mean, it was longer. Um, to simplify it, things like that. I mean, now I'd consider that good advice because too many um, big words that no one understands and no one reads it. And that was the critique I had of other people earlier, right? Mm. And did your uncle have a copy of it? Did you email it to him or did you sat, sit around having printed it off? And No, no, I, I had copies for him. Okay. But um, a long time ago. Um, then you had other people in my life who I sounded things off. I mean, I had people in, I had a friend who's a CIO of a bank still. Hmm. And um, he was back then. And um, uh, talking about logging systems, the need for mutable data, uh, Worm, which is... Uh, write once, read many, and the requirements that they had on their own um, information in the bank and uh, in, in discussing that and how we would implement it led to um, some of the the different findings. Lassiter's, when I was doing work with the casinos, hmm. um, what people don't understand is um, small casual payments don't mean these sort of BTC uh, million dollar transfers. Hmm. I mean, that's boring. If you think about it, Anyone can get a million-dollar transfer from banks, and um, if you're talking about a million-dollar transfer, you're not the unbanked, because there's always some bank on earth that will take you. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, if you want to be able to send 20 pence, that's that's difficult. Because right people now, don't have an interest in helping you do that, because it's too no, of a value, right? No. I mean, think even on credit cards, Vimo, Square. No one really cares. And the amount that you spend to send 20 cents on those platforms is just ridiculous. So is that, in your view, where this all came from, micropayments? Exactly. Um, the, I mean, motivation may not sound um, ideal to some people, but um, having worked with these gaming companies, uh, we had a, a lot of clients from places like Malaysia and things like this and they didn't want to spend a lot of money. They wanted to maybe spend uh, the equivalent of five cents mm. and just have a, a small wager and we'll put a bet on something. And that was that was it. And you needed to be able to, I mean, none of this anonymous stuff. Mm. I don't know if you've, you've thought about it, but you can't have anonymous poker. Now imagine a table of six people mm. and there's no way of proving who they are. The ideal would, of course, be you flood the table with five of your own bots mm. and you get some whale in to play you mm. and you play all of the other ones knowing what all your hands are. I mean, that's the reality. So if you don't know who the different players are, what they're doing, mm. then it's not really much of a game. 
And on top of that, you need to have data about players because you need to match people. It's no good putting someone who's a world champion poker player mm. against a newbie because that newbie will never come back. They'll just lose all their money in stock. So it's about inclusiveness again yeah. that you were talking about with that dartboard earlier. So this was a project in your view. I'm just trying to understand this. Bitcoin was a, it was a project that sat alongside your studies, that sat mm. alongside um, your work. How did that come to be a thing, something tangible? So I'm an Aspie. I'm, uh, what does that mean? Autistic. <laughs> and one of the, the things is focus. So okay. for many, many years, I mean, once I got sold on this idea, it becomes hard to get rid of. <laughs> I've known other people who are like me. And um, yeah, you, you find something in your life that is basically everyone thinks is ridiculous and you keep going into it. So really most of my studies, most of my focus have been always along this. Um, I've looked at different areas, how I expand it. Um, but going back to our dartboard analogy, I mean, there are areas around the dartboard, but mm. if you look at the center of them, it's always back there. So it's, it, it, is it, and I'm just trying to understand your perspective, is it, it's sort of like a heightened focus on something and that was the out the outward creation of that was in your view bitcoin and that you said i think it was predominantly you on your own is that yes. right um back in the 90s i started a variety of different projects mm -hmm. uh, to do with information security logging system management design mm -hmm. uh, access identity etc uh but at the heart of all this well that was the core and um, I guess it's it's um, sort of the Edison method. It's how many times do you fail before you give up? Yeah, now, fair. Um, the thing of having the focus that I do is you don't give up. And while everyone else is calling you daft, you just keep going and to either you die and uh, everyone thinks you wasted your life or you finally succeed and then everyone goes, wow. No, I, I completely understand that. I mean, perseverance to some extent is the way to build success, right? I think you've just yeah, got to keep rich. going. I tried to find some more information about this because I think it's mm. worth asking you questions. It's great to have you here and ask these questions to you. So apparently I was reading online. It says uh, theories around the, the world circulate that Satoshi was a Windows user. What's well, that about? Clearly you've obviously had someone pose this. Yeah, I mean, it was all uh, released on Windows. It was developed in Visual Studio, which Microsoft product. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I was a Windows user. Most users in the world are Windows users. Uh, so I didn't develop Bitcoin for a geek product. I developed it for average people to use in the internet. Okay. And in terms of, I mean, I was reading, an, again, an article on CoinGeek, and it was talking mm -hmm. about C++ language. So mm -hmm. it said, let's have a look. It said, Satoshi Nakamoto had a unique coding style with a, a peculiar grammar in the C++ language, which is a powerful object-orientated language built as an extension of the C programming language. C uses similar rules, but is ultimately a more rigid language used for system applications and low-level programming applications. Can you tell us more about C++? Think of my dad here. I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And is that statement from the CoinGeek article right in your view? Um, fairly much. So what we're, we're looking at is extend C by having lumps of code that are already developed and that can be called hmm. is the best way to put it. The the sort of extra function calls and the extra objects, et cetera, hmm. C++, 
just simplify having to redo everything all the time. Now, uh, C++ is um, not the lowest level language, of course. I mean, it's not ASM or... You say, of course. I mean, I'm sitting here listening to it, but... Um, but, I mean, it's not machine code. Okay. Um, or, I mean, they're even lower level of things than C. But um, it's very functional, very easy to access um, sort of memory locations, etc. Uh, it it gives you a lot of control over the hardware and the machine. Mm. Um, there are good and bad aspects to that. I mean, it makes it very machine specific. And um, that, of course, is why um, for developing it for Mac, you need other people to, to give you a hand because if you start developing on Windows machines, mm. Intel, it doesn't port instantly. Mm. So you need to actually play around and change it. Now, something like Java or Python, of course, um, they're much higher level languages and interpreters. And what that means is there is a abstraction layer between mm. the hardware and the language. So when you, you play in Python, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You can move it from Linux to Mac to Windows to iPhone, mm. and it still runs. Uh, when you write something in C++, you write it on Windows, and then you muck around with it to get it on Mac, and you muck around it more to get where it's there. So this is a gradual process. I mean, your 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 story was that you developed this predominantly on your own. How to again? If this is if this was built on Windows, then other people would have had to translate it onto Mac, right? So who are some of the other people in this story? Uh, and who so, are your friends in this? Oh, uh, I mean. I dealt with people in uh, the sort of community. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if they'd be friends. I mean, I was, okay. I was a, a badly worded question. I don't even know if benef uh, beneficent or anything, but dictator was the word. Okay. Um, very much a dictator. <laughs> Satoshi wasn't this monkish guy that people wanted. Dictator was definitely the word. Okay. Um, but. Um, well, who were some of the other people that you showed the white paper to or part of it? Or, or maybe you're telling me that... that... I mean, oh, I mean, multiple people. I, I tried to um, contact Tomas Aurora, who was one of the people behind the proof-of-work algorithm in Bitcoin. Okay. Um, but never responded. So um, Adam Back did. So um, I actually included him, but he was very dismissive, to be honest. Okay. Um, Hal Finney was, uh, I don't think really understood a lot of it. He'd worked on other projects and was too enamored with the whole anonymity and other type things, but. Uh, so his focus again on that dartboard was one section of it because he's, he's sort of, his name's banded around a lot, but in your view, was he just someone who you sent it to, to play around with and. No, he did much more. Him and. Okay. Um, what did he do? Uh, I mean, helped me realize that, um, um, sort of the way I was linking um, sort of DLLs and, and boost libraries wasn't going to work on everyone's computer. Easily. Um, you don't, unless you have a lot of test machines and you run it on different setups, you find that uh, you make a executable and it runs on your machine and crashes on someone else's. So, so you had to sort of share the project, I was going to say far and wide, but you had to sort of diversify to make sure that the system was compatible with others. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah. I mean, especially at the beginning, because mm. when you're thinking about 
loading something from a web browser. Mm. I mean, it's very different um, when you get to control the server environment yourself to people with their own machines, mm -hmm. when people have now phones and uh, different types of operating system, et cetera. So each of those different environments will run completely separately. When I was looking at Bitcoin, one of the things that sticks out, I think, to me and to everybody is the, the, the release date and the message about the financial crash. Tell me about that. Have you read the article? I remember reading it a while ago, but I'm sure you're going to remind me. So, um, you know how NatWest is now partly government owned? Yep. All the bailouts, I remember. Mm-hmm. Well, that was part of it. So Chancellor Darling... Um, did this big threat saying, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to nationalize you. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of objectivist in many ways. And so it was your philosophy. My, my, my question I got written down here, why was it released then? And I suppose potentially what you're telling me is, is it was born of a frustration in your view. No, it wasn't. No? I mean, I've been coding for two years. Okay. That was, I mean, that was why I put that in. Um, it was released then actually in part because of the global financial crisis, but not the way you're looking at it. Um, I was uh, a director at um, BDO, an accounting firm yep. in Australia, the second tier. And um, they basically, because of the downturn um, in the market, uh, put out like a, a thing saying, we're looking for people to take voluntary uh, redundancies. Mm. And I put up my hand and, and took the cash and with what I, uh, and then I, alone on my house and a few other bits and pieces, hmm. uh, got to drop out for two years and and um, do an occasional sort of uh, bit of consulting work or paper or something, but majority was just focused on Bitcoin. So uh, I'd been looking at other options before that. I, hmm. I um, had um, spoken to Microsoft. I'd actually flown over to Seattle a couple of times and been interviewed um, by the Bing team, which is previously Microsoft Search, MSN mm -hmm. Search. And uh, they were looking at some way of controlling um, uh, sort of uh, malware on the web to record access, to do payments without ads, to a whole lot of things. And, mm. and um, I thought, I mean, didn't sell it well enough, obviously, because... Um, uh, the hiring got frozen, but uh, so did my opportunities there. Back in 2011, they came back going, well, do you want to still try? <laughs> yeah, do you want to give this a go? <laughs> Are you telling me then that your original idea in your view was actually potentially to sell this product, whatever it may be, software, let's just call it whatever, right? Let's just call it a product. Were you, In your view, were you going to sell this product to a large company? Did you Did you feel like it was going to be what it is now. I mean, where did the, where did that come from? So, I mean, I, I spent several million dollars on developing this, so mm -hmm. um, I hoped to get that back, but I didn't think uh, billions. Uh, at first, I, I approached BDO. I went to a few people there, um, some of the partners. Um, I was on partner track before I resigned, which didn't uh, sort of enamor some people. <laughs> did, did it end up, yeah. Fair enough. Um, but um, um, they weren't interested. They they couldn't see the value. They, I mean, it's hard selling something that doesn't exist. Yeah, I can <laughs> imagine. So at that point then, because the name Satoshi's interesting to me because 
you know, some people think it's sort of an Asian name. Where, where did all of that come from on the basis that you were looking to sell it, the product, to BDO or whoever it may be? Where did that name come from? Well, um, that goes back. I mean, I've got a history of using um, pseudonyms and okay. going right back. I mean, um, Dosh, Doshe, uh, Kate, uh, go right back to the 90s and probably earlier. Mm. So, I, I, was it just something that you plucked out of the air? Um, I, I sort of made up different pseudonyms over time, but I mean, I grew up with um, a whole lot of uh, Japanese relics, etc. Because my my grandfather was um, actually over in Manila and the Philippines. Mm. Um, well, right back before MacArthur, because he was pretending to be uh, an Italian um, officer and. So the Japanese ignored him, and he basically lived with um, the Japanese military um, as he helped get information out, etc. So right. So there was the, the in your mind. I just want to understand it because again, I'm learning a lot here. There was a period in your life where you thought, you know, I'm going to sell this, and BDO might be good, and they've gone, you know, what well, we're not interested in this, and then you well, decided BDO. I thought if I get the idea out there, it will help um, with cats, like computer aided audit yeah, technology. Yeah. It will help. Um, ensure that the records are more accurate, reduce fraud. Uh, I saw it as sort of a product offering. Um, was it Bitcoin at that stage when you were offering? It? No. It was pre then. Timecoin was the first and other similar names. But um, I thought that this concept we could roll out globally. Hmm. Um, I would get um, partner, senior partner, you know, that sort of stuff. I'd have a product line that I could offer um, in the global firm. Um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't quite the. I mean, so it, it took was, a different route because BDO said no, and to some extent they said no. I started talking to Microsoft about the solutions. I talked to some other American companies where I was flown out and visited. Uh -huh. um, Microsoft, um, sort of. I mean, I, I guess I didn't really explain it terribly well. Um, the white paper wasn't ready when I was first talking to them. Mm -hmm. um, it had drafts. The, I mean, then it was October of that year when uh, the freeze happened. Mm -hmm. um, so I went bugger it and, and release the white paper to tell him much. Um, well, way to put it. I mean, uh, I'd been talking to Microsoft for six months right. like, for the role. And... Um, then everything got put on freeze and hold, and so that's the. It's interesting that that's the story. I didn't know that, and again, I wonder whether um, you know people do know that. I want to move on to the, the, this. I'm going to call it a character of Satoshi because there's an element of mm. you removing yourself, right? So, in your view, what kind of person was the character Satoshi Nakamoto back then, and how does that question too? How does that differ from Craig Wright, the human being before me? Ah, oh, so. In my life, I've gone through a number of uh, different phases, and I'm trying to get back to some parts of where I was, but differently. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, I was more stoic. I mean, the 2009 me was very different to the now me. Um, I was very rigid. I, I had, um, every week I went through one of Franklin's different virtues, the way he did. And I recorded what I was doing right, wrong, etc. which, yeah, I mean, I'll say is too rigid. 
the way I was doing it. Um, then uh, between my, the breakup of my first marriage, my uh, fun with the Australian tax office and other things, I, I went too far the other way. Um, and then when things came out, uh, 2016, etc., even further, uh, losing some of what I was. I mean, I blamed other people for a long time rather than sort of going back to a stoic idea of accepting life, which is where I'm trying to get back to now. I mean, um, I'm, I've come to understand that I can't just slot in sort of the way I did things rigidly, uh, which might have worked as an auditor and might have worked as where I was in, in my past, but where I'm now, I, I need to be more flexible, but sort of do the same things. I, I've got other things I need to work on and develop, not just Franklin. So one of them is defensiveness and okay. um, anger, uh, etc. So I, I've got to move away from blaming people, move away from those areas and, and understand that as we change, I, I've got to grow into that. So I've got to accept myself again, which I'm trying to do. And that's a great answer um, and a, a, a decent moment of self-reflection. So thank you for that. Are you saying then, because the person you were back then is, is who you are trying to avoid, I think, to some extent now, would you say that Satoshi then was the person who you were splitting yourself into, right? So you had your, your person, Craig Wright, who you said was very stoic, right? And you're saying that that was detrimental. In that respect, Satoshi was there to do what for you? Satoshi was there to basically launch a product without being political, trying to be more universal for people. Um, I'm personally very political and um, I've tried avoiding that, but I've actually found that's problematic. I, I, I mean, conservative in part, but mm -hmm. I mean, um, people will go right wing, but I actually argue many aspects um, all over the place, but different. So what I would say is philosophically, there are many different arguments and being able to debate them is important, but just accepting things and tolerating, um, you need to understand what tolerance is and why you're doing it and, mm. and what is best for not only yourself, but society. So I've got to try and get back to the point where I don't isolate each part of me. I mean, but bring it all back together. So as I said, my, my views, um, to integrate them, to actually bring those out and not everyone will like them. And some people will, will complain. Mm. I'm very much a, a capitalist, a free market, not the crony large cap app. I mean, I, this is the silly thing. We, we're getting into where I have a large, uh, company that I've founded and I'm sitting there arguing that large companies should be restricted and controlled and. Uh, that's a dichotomy, and again, is that best for, for me? But I believe it's also best for the company because it's what I didn't do. You need to have that reflective aspect of yourself to to have virtue, and a company needs to have virtue. Mm. A company needs to have a focus that doesn't make it just a wild, unconstrained superintelligence, as I was saying, uh, uh, that has no, no real point. Does that mean then that back in the early days, Satoshi was a way to remain anonymous for you. And over time, you've obviously come out and you've said, you know, this was me. And 
what's, I, I guess... The not anonymous. It was a way of separating the concept and the idea. So what I was saying is, I mean, and my, I mean, and I still believe this, the concept behind Bitcoin, mm. money, um, a ledger, etc., has to be bigger than my idea. So um, what I believe, well, I'm Christian, but it needs to also be something that if you're into um, sort of uh, Confucian-type religions, Buddhism, mm -hmm. um, if you're Islamic, if you're uh, Rastafarian, I don't really care. It, it shouldn't be what this is about. And they should be separated. So money shouldn't be uh, in that realm. I mean, yes, there'll be donations to different churches and things like that. Mm -hmm. but that's that's a use of money. Money itself should be neutral. So, And you understood that according to your story from that early stage and then i guess you've you've come out what was the what was the prompt for sort of identifying yourself right because you've gone to those lengths to make sure that it's neutral and then all of a sudden you attach yourself who you know you your own character your own person to attach it sort of back to this project what was the reasoning behind that well i mean i wasn't um, as anonymous as people think i'd been talking to people in government and others mm. and um, so that's why pseudonymous. There were people who knew what who I was, uh, then blamed me for everything that went wrong. I mean, uh, Silk Road, etc., wasn't my fault. But there's well, someone in jail now, I think, isn't it? I know. Yeah. I mean, you sit there going, "Well, you you basically created the system." And I go, Ugh. "No, I didn't." If someone, if I um, invent a chef's knife, uh, can't be blamed for the murders if someone got exactly. stabbed. That's, that's your but. I can't be blamed for all the good menus uh, and meals are, that are served in London at the same time. You took a positive spin on that. I took a negative <laughs> spin on that. I, I mean, that's the whole way out. You, you, yeah, it's. But what was the what, why? Why come out at that point? Because was it untenable to remain? Um... Well, it doesn't really have a choice. I mean, Wired and Gizmodo were um, sort of taking material from uh, people like Ira Kleiman and others who were feeding information about me. And... Right. So it was a reaction to releases all sorts of stuff is that is that what you're saying yeah the remainder of this conversation will be released as a separate episode this podcast does not contain any financial or legal advice and you should not seek to rely on it as such opinions are the individual's own this podcast was produced and edited by joe Hawkins and music by luke carey thank you for listening and see you next time